Uh, well, good morning, everyone. Um, I'm so thankful that we have announcements between praise and the sermon because I, I was a wreck during praise, and so I needed time to gather myself. But um, so glad that you're with us today. My name is Jason. I have the privilege of serving as one of the pastors here on staff at the church. Um, again, just want to echo uh, what DC said. If you're new, we know this is a season when um, you know, there are uh, newcomers coming, and sometimes Sundays can be a little bit overwhelming, but if you have any questions uh, about ways to get plugged into our community, you can definitely find us, uh, myself or some of our staff volunteers, um, at the info table uh, after service. Okay? Uh, with that, uh, as always, I have the privilege of bringing us God's Word. Uh, if you have your Bibles, if you want to turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 11. And we're going to look at verses 1 to 4. If you can choose your translation, I'm going to be reading from the NIV, the New International Version. And it's also going to be on the screen behind me. Luke chapter 11, verses 1 to 4. This is the reading of God's Word. One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. Amen. Let me say a prayer for us before we get started. Holy Spirit, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you. Would you open our ears and our hearts to receive what you would have for us today? This morning, our hearts particularly ache for the communities in Monterey Park and Half Moon Bay, now in Memphis, as we consider uh, count more uh, image bearers whose lives have been tragically cut short, and we grieve alongside their families, their friends, and their communities. Uh, we pray this morning that your word would be a healing balm to our souls. We thank you, and in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, if you've been with us the past few weeks, uh, you know that we are in a series at our church called The Liturgical Life, where we are examining the different practices, rhythms, routines, and liturgies that shape Jesus' life and, and allowed him to be the person he was. I think, you know, we, oft, we, we always say that Jesus was God, but we also forget that he was also fully human, that he, had, he, like us, had to figure out how to live in the midst of a broken world. He had to figure out how to navigate things like loneliness, loss, and grief without completely falling apart. We think Jesus didn't feel these things because he was God, but Hebrews 4.15 tells us that Jesus understands every weakness of ours because he was tempted in every way that we are. And you could even argue that things like loneliness were felt even more deeply by Jesus because Jesus, more than anyone, knew what true community felt like. He knew what it was like to be in an eternal, unbroken state of communion and fellowship within the Trinity. And so imagine having to leave all of that, come to earth, and be rejected by your so-called friends, be rejected by the people you came to save, be constantly misunderstood and abandoned. And yet somehow in the midst of all of it, 
Jesus found a way to live a full, abundant life. How did he do it? He did it by organizing his life in a very specific way that allowed him to keep his eyes fixed on God and his kingdom. And Jesus offers us this blueprint for life, and he says, come follow me. Do as I did. Live as I lived, and you will find life on the other side. So each week, we're examining one specific practice of Jesus. In week one, we looked at the practice of silence and solitude. Then we looked at the practice of simplicity. And last week, we looked at the practice of reading scripture. And today, we have another big one, uh, the practice of prayer. Practice of prayer. And I'm going to say it straight up, that there is no way I could possibly encapsulate all that prayer is into one sermon. Um, you could literally spend an entire year talking about prayer and not even scratch the surface. Um, but what I at least hope you walk away with today, more than anything, is at least a renewed sense of the power of prayer and a renewed desire to pray. Okay, if there's anything I hope you will get from this talk, from this teaching, uh, is the power of prayer and a renewed desire to pray. Uh, needless to say, this past week uh, was one of those weeks where prayer was at the forefront of our collective consciousness. You know, we, we took time last week to pray for um, families and friends of those who lost their lives in the Monterey Park shooting, um, went home, and it, it was like, um, you know, one at a time, it felt like. Um, then the mass shooting at Half Moon Bay, and then a few days ago, as many of you have seen, um, released footage of the vicious murder of Tyree Nichols that once again has our entire nation reeling. And to, if I'm going to be honest, like this is one of the first one uh, situations where I, I actually didn't watch the video. I couldn't do it. Um, and, you know, I, I think in the past I felt like a, some level of responsibility uh, as a pastor to kind of see what's been circulating online and see what um, the majority of our congregation um, has seen, but I couldn't watch it myself. It was, it was just too much. And I think, as always, um, in the wake of these tragedies, you had the regular stream um, on social media of thoughts and prayers. You also had the regular stream of people posting why thoughts and prayers aren't enough. Uh, you had prayer meetings and candlelight vigils. You had prayers from pastors, congressmen, community leaders. Prayer was everywhere. And as we all know, prayer isn't limited to the Christian tradition. Uh, if there's one practice that's universal across all faith traditions, all communities, all people groups, it's the practice of prayer. People pray for their crops. People pray at weddings. People pray at funerals, uh, at inaugurations of presidents, uh, before war. Um, I know people pray in Vegas all the time, okay? Please, God, let it be read, right? Um, in Vegas, I've seen atheists become charismatics, okay? They're like, please, Lord. Some don't even know exactly who they're praying to. Sometimes uh, it's just a general uh, force somewhere out there in the universe or some spiritual being. But somehow, as nebulous and mystical as this thing called prayer is, we can't seem to get rid of it. It's still everywhere. And I think it's because all of us experience moments in our lives when we're confronted with the very real re reality that we need someone or something outside of ourselves to help us. 
I think we all experience those moments in our lives when we realize we're not as strong as we thought we were. We need help. Three weeks ago during Monday Night Football, an entire nation watched in horror as DeMar Hamlin, who's a safety for the Buffalo Bills, collapsed on the field after making what looked like a routine tackle. Many of you know that football players get injured all the time, but anyone watching that game in real time, you just knew this one was different because the guy wasn't moving. He just laid there lifeless on the field. And, and uh, a stadium that was once full of like raucous people in an instant went silent. And every person in that stadium and everyone who was watching that game in real time just held our breath as we watched some of the best medical professionals in the world come out on the field and try to resuscitate this man to no avail. And at that moment, it didn't matter uh, who you were. It didn't matter what you believed about God. It didn't matter if you were rich or poor, if you were sitting in the nosebleeds or in the front row. Every head in that stadium was literally or figuratively bowed in prayer. Whether we like it or not, all of us at some point in our lives are going to find ourselves in a situation or season of life when we become keenly aware of our fragility as human beings. These moments that remind us that no matter how intelligent we think we are, no matter how much money we have in our bank account, no matter how prepared we are for the worst case scenario, we're not in control. And these moments can overwhelm us. Because you and I both know we try to live every moment of our lives like we're in control. But I think about the famous quote by Barbara Brown Taylor who says, we don't lose control of our lives. What we lose is the illusion that we were ever in control in the first place. To borrow an analogy from Corey Tenboom, I think a lot of us, we often see prayer like a spare tire. Right? We, we, we turn to it in emergencies. We pull it out only when we really need it. But she says, prayer isn't a spare tire, it's the steering wheel. We need it in every moment, in every season of our lives, or we will crash. And Jesus understood this. When you read the Gospels, you realize that prayer was at the center point of Jesus' life. It was woven into his day-to-day -day existence. It didn't matter how busy he was, how popular he was getting. It didn't matter how successful his ministry life was. He always made time to pray. He prayed when things got difficult. He prayed when things were great. He prayed in the morning. He prayed in the evening. He prayed alone. He prayed with his friends. He prayed on the cross. He always made time to pray. His life was marked by prayer. For Jesus, prayer was like breathing. Luke 11 opens with the words, now Jesus was praying in a certain place. No rhyme or reason. They give us no indication as to why Jesus would have been praying. There was no dire circumstance. He was just praying because that's what Jesus did. He always prayed. So much so that the disciples come to him and they don't ask him, hey, can you teach us how to cast out demons? That was pretty sick what you did back there. They didn't say, hey, can you show us how, to, how you did that thing with the, with the loaves and the fish? Like, I want that in my arsenal. No, they said, can you teach us how to pray? Teach us to pray. They started to realize that the secret of Jesus' life, the secret of Jesus' power wasn't his charisma, it wasn't his giftedness. It wasn't his incredible leadership. It was his prayer life. 
Whatever was happening every time Jesus went away to spend some intentional time with the Father was literally altering reality as they knew it, and they said, teach me how to do that. I want that. And in response, Jesus goes on to give them what we now know as the Lord's Prayer. And I love that the prayer Jesus gives them uh, is shorter than the length of a tweet. Right? And it's such a Jesus move, because you think that if you were to ask Jesus, teach me how to pray, that he would give you this really, like, incredible literary masterpiece. But he gives them 34 words. He gives them a prayer so simple, a three-year-old could recite it. You know, I always think, like, people ask me, like, how do you know if a musician is an amateur or professional? You know, I always say, telltale sign of an amateur musician is they play too much. The greatest musicians actually know when not to play. They know when the notes aren't necessary, and they only play exactly what is necessary to communicate something in the song. And this is exactly what Jesus does. He gives them only the notes that are necessary. Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. That's it. No fluff, straight to the point. Simple, but so profound and so intentional. Now, obviously Jesus wasn't saying these are the exact words you have to pray every time. And we know this because Jesus himself didn't always pray these exact words. But what Jesus is giving his disciples here is a framework for prayer. He's saying every time you enter into a time of prayer, I want you to remember some truths. I want you to sit in a few realities. And he tells us, gives us this framework and says, this is what prayer is at its core. And this is so important because I think one of the reasons so many of us struggle to pray is that we don't even know what prayer is. And so we go into prayer with all these weird misconceptions and all these different expectations, and we always get disappointed when our prayer doesn't yield the results we want it to, not realizing that we haven't really grasped what prayer is at its core, right? But I hope that as we look at Jesus' model for prayer here in Luke 11, that it'll shift our perspective on what prayer is. So let's dive in. And I'm going to spend most of our time on the first three phrases because um, I think that's where we struggle most, okay? We, we don't really struggle to ask God to give us our daily bread, okay? We ask him that all the time. But we struggle, I think, with these first three phrases. The first thing you'll notice is that this prayer opens with the word Father. And Jesus is very intentional about that. It sets the tone for the whole prayer. If prayer ultimately is a conversation with God, who you believe God to be matters. It really matters. Do you believe you are having a conversation with an impersonal, distant being that's somewhere out there in the universe? Or do you believe that you're conversing with a loving father who wants the absolute best for you? Because who you are having a conversation with changes the way you speak, and it changes the way you listen. Okay, people who know my wife, Carol, very well knows that she has a home voice and she has her corporate voice, right? And when I walk in and she's talking on the phone, I know if she's talking to someone from work because it's her corporate voice. Uh-huh, uh-huh, right? Well, just to piggyback off that, you know, she never uses the word piggyback, you know, at home, but she always uses it in her work voice, right? Who we're having the conversation with shifts the way we speak. 
Now, it's not lost on me that many of us grew up without fathers or perhaps with terrible relationships with our fathers. So even to hear, you know, this idea of addressing God as Father, maybe that doesn't do anything for you, but I want us to kind of understand what exactly Jesus is getting at and what he wants his disciples to understand. What he's trying to illustrate is that up to that point, nobody called God Dad. There were a hundred names you could use for God. Dad would be the last on the list. And yet Jesus always called God Dad. And here when he teaches his disciples to pray, he says, I want you to call him Dad too. And there are so many layers to that, right? As in those days, people saw God as this untouchable being. You just wanted to live your life trying not to piss him off and do anything that would send you to hell and that, do anything that would get his wrath. So, I mean, to call God Father was to signal a completely different kind of relationship, a different kind of intimacy that completely reframes the way we pray. You know, one of the things that really changed for me, and, you know, people ask me all the time, like, what changed when you became a pastor? And I always say, people started treating me differently. You know, like, it, like I, I go to these birthday parties or weddings, you know, and I'm having a conversation about something, and somewhere in the conversation, the person finds out I'm a pastor, and they're like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. Like, did you get your food already? And I'm like, whoa, what happened? You know, I go play golf, and like, you know, it's a, it, we're having a great round, and around hole eight, he's like, so what do you do for a living? I'm, like, I'm a pastor. And he's like, I'm so sorry, pastor, for, for cursing so much back there. Like, <laughs> I, I'm so sorry. You know, and, and there's this posture of, like, fear. And I think oftentimes when we, when we approach prayer, we kind of enter it into this posture of, am I saying the right things? like trying to look a certain way, trying to please God, trying to get his favor and earn his attention and earn his love. But the way Jesus says he wants you to address God is as father. You know, the way my kids address me is so different from the way everyone addresses me. You know, I came up in, you know, upstairs and saw them in the kitchen this morning. They were like, what's up, old man? <laughs> That's how they speak to me, Okay. And there's a different kind of relationship there. Already, it just signals a different kind of intimacy. But the second layer of opening the prayer with the word Father, and the fact that he opens with it, is that it reminds us that nothing you say after that fact is going to change that relationship that you have. You could come to God and tell him the worst thing you did. You could come to God and tell him everything you can't stand about him. And that's still not going to change the reality that he's your father, that he wants what's best for you. You're already operating from a place of acceptance and love. You don't pray or do these spiritual practices in order to get God, in order that you can call God dad. You can call him dad anywhere, anytime, any place. Well, immediately after the word father, the very next phrase is hallowed be your name. And it's as though Jesus is saying, okay, I want you to know that God is your father, but don't get it twisted. He's nothing like you. Hallowed be your name. His name is holy, which literally means set apart, separate. He's not of this world. He's beyond our comprehension. And I love how Jesus juxtaposes these two words together, 
Father and Hallowed. Dad and Holy, as if to tell you, Father tells you God wants the best for you. Hallowed tells you he actually has the power to do it. When you experience a week like this past week, full of grief, full of loss, full of tragedy, you need to know two things. You need to know, one, that God cares about it, that he cares about what's happening. But two, you need to know that he actually can do something about it. Father says he cares about it. Hollywood says he's able. He's powerful. He's out of this world. These two words make up the foundation of what it means to live as a follower of Jesus. On one hand, you need to know that God is completely accessible, that he is with you and that he is for you. And on the other hand, you need to know that God is utterly and completely transcendent, that there is no one like him, that his ways are higher than ours, that he's working in ways that we do not understand. Hallowed be your name. Well, what's the next line? Your kingdom come. Okay, this is the abridged version in Matthew's gospel. We get the full version. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come. I think you and I often go into prayer with the mindset of my kingdom come. I need you, God, to do something for me. My agenda, my career, my relationships, my life. We see prayer as bending the will of God toward ours, but prayer is not about bending the will of God toward us. It's about bending our will toward his. Your kingdom come. Help me to see your agenda for my life. Help me, to see the, help me to see other people and the world through your eyes. Help me to love what you love and help me to hate what you hate. Prayer doesn't change God, it changes me. He doesn't need my prayers. I need my prayers because it does something to me. And it's not that we don't ask God what we want. He's our Father, so we can come to him with, with anything. And the entire second half of the prayer is devoted to that. It's about bringing our request to God. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins. Lead us not into temptation. But we start by aligning our hearts with God so that when we begin to ask for things, our hearts are aligned with his. We're learning how to see all of life and the world through God's eyes and from his perspective. So the posture isn't God. Here's what I want to do with my life. Can you partner with me to make it happen? No, the posture is what are you doing right now? What are you up to in my life and in the world? Can I partner with you to make that happen? Subtle shift, but so important. And let me just give us some quick theology to flesh out this idea of a partnership with God. The first line of the Bible on the first page says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, meaning heaven and earth were one. God's space, human space were one. And they were always meant to be one. Human beings in partnership with God, ruling his good world together, doing life together, doing life with God. But in Genesis 3, what happens? Human beings say, decide to say, you know what? I don't think we need God to do this. They declare their own autonomy. I think we can do it better on our own. So what do they do? They decide to do life apart from God. And all of a sudden, what was once one? Heaven and earth, God's space and human space get torn apart, get ripped into two. 
fracturing all of creation and fracturing above all things our relationship with God. And yet God loved us too much to allow us to destroy ourselves. And so what do we get after Genesis 3? The entire story of the Bible is God relentlessly pursuing us, trying everything to find a way so that he could be with his people. And so when Jesus comes on the scene and the first thing he says is the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he's saying, I'm bringing God and humans back together. Heaven is invading earth and I'm going to make the two one. I'm going to take everything that has been ripped apart. I'm going, to be, I'm going to take everything that is broken and I'm going to repair it. I'm going to make things new. I'm going to make a way for sinful human beings to experience life with God, to experience divine presence and love that is continually flowing toward us. And Jesus' entire life, that's what he did. He created these small pockets of heaven on earth to show you this is what reality is supposed to look like, where the marginalized are lifted up, where the blind receive sight, where the oppressed are set free. I'm going to show you this is what heaven looks like. He shows people a different reality, a reality that's cemented on the cross when through Jesus' atoning sacrifice, sinful human beings are now able to have access to life with God forever. And prayer is the very portal through which you and I can access this reality every moment of our lives now. How powerful and profound is that? Corey Ten Boom says, the wonderful thing about praying is that you leave a world of not being able to do something and enter God's realm where everything is possible. Every time we pray, we get a slice of heaven on earth. And some people think, man, they look at people who go off and pray all the time and they say, you're denying reality, you're escaping reality. No, we're coming back to reality and relearning how to see the world through its lens. When you look at everything going on in our lives and in the world, it's very easy right now for us to begin to get a distorted vision of reality. For us to see a reality where there's no hope in this world left, where there's no hope left for us. Because our reality is constantly just shaped by our social media feeds, they're shaped by the headlines, and we just see doom and gloom. But when you and I pray, we declare ultimate reality. We say, that's not reality. There's a different reality. It's like all of us are living in the matrix, right? And every day we're being convinced that life looks a certain way. And this is the way the world operates, and this is the way things are, and this is the way things should be. Every time we pray, we get transported out of the matrix. And we're like, this is what reality is. And I want you to look at everything else from this lens. Because when you pray, you realize a different reality. A reality in which God is making all things new. A reality where nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. In prayer, we discover our humanity that feels like it's constantly being stripped from us. Philip Yancey says, most of my struggles in the Christian life circle, circle around the same two themes. Why God doesn't act the way I want him to and why I don't act the way God wants me to. 
Prayer is the precise point where those themes converge. And he says, if prayer stands as the place where God and humans meet, then I must learn about prayer. Teach me how to pray. So how do we get this transformative practice of prayer into our lives so that we too can experience the abundant joy of a life with God? Because it feels like everything about our lives in L.A. in 2023 pulls us away from that. We live in a culture of consumerism, in a culture of instant gratification. If I'm looking for something, I can find it in an instant. I just pull out my phone. That's hanging out in my back pocket 24-7. If I want something, I can have it delivered to my doorstep within a few hours. Waiting is a lost art form in our culture. But God does not and has never operated this way. Are some prayers answered on the spot? Absolutely. And I believe he can. But anyone who has read the Bible and anyone who has lived life with God knows that God never seems to operate on our timetable or according to our limited imagination. It's funny that you and I will pray for something and we assume that God hasn't answered the prayer. We assume that prayer doesn't work because the results don't come immediately. Do you know that some of you are answered prayers sitting in this room, answered prayers of your parents, mentors, pastors in your life 30 years ago who maybe never saw that prayer come to fruition, but here you are. Do you know that some of you are living in the reality of your answered prayers that you forgot about because you forgot you even had that prayer request? You're living in it now we don't often see it because the work of the spirit is often slow it's often unseen and unexpected so in the busyness and distractions of this culture how do we pray and how do we experience life with god that's always available to us we pray everything everywhere every day everything everywhere every day I really wanted to say everything everywhere all at once, <laughs> but it didn't work with the theology of what I was trying to preach, so I couldn't do it. I'm sorry, okay? These are the things that, that I spend most of my time on when I prepare these sermons. Everything, everywhere, every day. And it's what the Apostle Paul was talking about in 1 Thessalonians when he said, pray without ceasing. We pray everything, everywhere, Every day, first everything. You pray everything. Bring all your emotions to God because God can take it. There's nothing God doesn't already know about what you're feeling. There's nothing you need to hide. He knows your joy, your anxiety, your fear, your grief. You don't need to impress him. You don't have to be inarticulate. God is the one person that you don't have to spend all your time crafting the perfect caption for. You don't have to spend all your time curating what you say for. You don't have to use your corporate voice. You can just unload. Hebrews 5, 7 to 8 says, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the ones who could save him from death. Jesus himself, I'm assuming, came to God as a blabbering mess a lot with fervent cries and tears 
Jesus' prayers weren't always holier than thou. Think about his prayers in the Garden of Gethsemane before his crucifixion. He was basically praying, I don't know, God, if I, I can do this. Like, is there any other way? It's a very honest prayer for the Son of God. If Jesus could pray everything, so can we. Before we make a big decision, after we fight with our spouse, after, see a, after you see a post that makes you feel bad about yourself, when you see news that makes you feel sick to your stomach, bring it all to God. Everything. Number two, everywhere. You know, I know some of us think that prayer is this thing where you have to go off into the woods or go on a prayer retreat or like a, a silent walk or in your prayer closet to pray. And you're like, I don't have time to do this. You know, I'm juggling two jobs. You know, I'm a young parent. You know, I barely have time to eat and sleep. Pray where you are. Stop trying to escape your life thinking God is somewhere else. Anywhere in your life can be turned into an altar of prayer. Anywhere in your life can be a place of sacred encounter with the living Christ. You know, like um, when Carol and I first started dating and we got married, life looked so different and it was easy to spend time with each other. You know, we didn't have to schedule out date nights and we didn't have to, you know, because we spent every waking moment together. The moment we had kids, just life became different. And we needed to find a way in that season and in that stage of life to still experience life together. And so there's no like, you know, black and white way you, can, you have to pray. Pray everywhere. Because anywhere can be turned into an altar of encounter. If you're a parent and you're getting up at 3 a.m. in the morning to feed your kids, Use that place as a place of encounter. When you're standing in line at the DMV, when you're in the car on your commute to work, those few awkward moments on the Zoom right before everyone else comes in, pray. Invite God into every situation and every circumstance because he's always there. Everything, everywhere, and finally, every day. It's interesting that when Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, one detail he doesn't seem to leave out is this implication that there, this is something you should do every day. He says, give us each day our daily bread. So he's saying, I want you to pray for your daily bread every day. Give me the grace I need for today. Jesus is teaching his disciples a model for prayer that becomes woven into our daily existence. He's like, I know you're probably thinking about things five years down the line, ten years down the line, and you're so worried about what's going to happen. Give us this day our daily bread. Give me what I need for today. Sustain me today. You know, I, I used to talk to my parents and I asked them, why do you go to morning prayer at five in the morning every day? It's like you don't have, you know, when I, when I was in my early 20s and I thought I was really like theological and I was like, you know, I was like, you don't have to do that. God doesn't need that. And I was like, why do you go to morning prayer every day? And they said, because we're desperate. That's all we know how to do.
prayer and communion with God must become the air that we breathe because we will not make it we will not make it in this city as parents we need to experience life with God we need a different reality to shape us When you first start to pray, it's going to be awkward. If you're new to prayer or if it's your first time in church, it's going to be like having a conversation for the first time. You know, you're not going to know, like, you know, like the, those first conversations when you, like, keep interrupting each other. How that? Now, okay, yeah, okay, you go, you go. No, no, you go, right? It's like Zoom, it's like Zoom, like a forever Zoom chat, right? And at times, it's going to feel forced, and it's going to feel contrived. But when we begin to pray everything, everywhere, every day, you will see something begin to happen. I was watching a um, video this week of a dance workshop. Don't worry, I'm not trying to be a dancer. Um, <laughs> um, but basically, they picked two dancers at random, and um, they have them basically improv a dance. And, you know, they don't have no idea, like, what music is going to come on, and they just have them come up and have them improv a dance. One dancer is like, they brought a hip-hop dancer up, and one is like a ballroom dancer. And they're like, you don't know, but we're going to turn on music, and you're going to have to do it. And at the beginning, when the song comes on, at first, you see that, like, even though they're professionals, because they're kind of out operating outside of their comfort zone, there's this like push and pull where like it's kind of awkward where they're trying to get to know each other and you know they're like one person wants to go left but the other one clearly wants to go right. One person wants to spin the other person. The other person's kind of resistant and it's just this awkward, awkward tug. But as the music continues to play, you see something magical begin to happen. These dancers just start to move in the same direction. You know, all of a sudden, you, you start to forget where one dancer ends and the other one begins. Like, where one goes, the other follows. And it's this beautiful alignment that starts to happen. And I don't know why I got, like, emotional watching this, but this is exactly what happens as we pray. Prayer is not a fatalistic enterprise where we throw up our hands and we say, we can't do anything about this, so God, you do it. Prayer is an opportunity to dance with the Creator, to partner with Him in the renewal of the world. The more you go to God in prayer, the more you spend time in His presence, the more you will be aligned, and where He goes, you will follow. And you will start to work together, and you will see something magical happen. And the paradox of the Christian life and the paradox of prayer is that the more you spend time in God's presence, the more you will begin to see that his presence is all you need. Prayer stops being a means to an end and becomes an end in and of itself, so much so that whether or not you get the thing that you originally went to pray for, whether or not your life looks exactly the way you scripted it, it doesn't even matter anymore because you just want to be where God is. 
Moses in the book of Exodus, there's this moment when God says, you know what, I can't deal with you people, so you can go to the promised land, but I'm not going to go with you. And Moses says, don't give me the promised land if your presence won't go with me. He says, that's what I need. I need to be where you are. Psalm 16 says, in your presence, there is fullness of joy. There is no better place to be in the arms of our loving Father. Let's pray. In light of this word uh, this morning, I want to just give us a few moments so that we can come to God as our Father, that we can encounter Him even in this high school auditorium. And I know for some of us this week has been heavy I know many of us are going through so many personal things, marriage issues, issues with our children, miscarriages, relational difficulty, loss of job. Some of us are just um, in a great place, and some of us feel like we can see God's movement in our life. Whatever it is, I want us to give us this moment to bring everything to God in prayer. So let's just take a moment to do that. thank you for your presence that is with us now. We thank you that your love continues to flow, that your grace continues to cover over us. So many of us are weary and we're tired. We, we see um, all around us and even in our own lives and in the world, just the brokenness of our humanity and humanity desperately crying out for their creator. And the thing is, is you've always been there You've always been waiting. 
and your desire is to bless us abundantly, to give us your presence if we would just receive. So God, we pray that this room would become an altar of prayer, that this space would be a place of encounter with a living God who is active and moving in our lives and in the world. Thank you that this life and this world and the things that we're seeing on the news, thank you that they don't depend on our ability and thank you that they don't depend on our good judgments and our good decision-making and our politics and our government. We thank you that you are sovereign and good, that you are both a loving Father and a holy God. We commit this time to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.